It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Good morning. It's Friday, September 20th, 2019. I'm Orla Carmody in for Michael. On today's programme, the Irish motor industry in the worst place since 2008. The only secondary level gale skull between Balbriggan and Belfast under threat. Finding direction in a time of uncertainty and the mystery of a burial urn found in a recycling centre. But first, we're leading off this morning with the news that the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar has told TDs and senators that they can win the next general election if they all step up. And he has confirmed that the four Dáil by-elections will be held at the end of November. Joining us now is our political correspondent Sean Defoe with all of that and more. Good morning, Sean. Morning, Arla. So the doll is uh, set back this week and straight out we're kind of on an election footing, would you believe? Yeah, straight away. I mean, the tone was kind of set at the party conferences last week when the Avranca said that he wanted the election to be in May 2020. The mood around all of them was really that we are in the final run-in to a general election, be that in May or even a little bit earlier in the new year. And that's kept up this week. Tisha Cleveranca writing on Wednesday evening to his parliamentary party saying that he believes that they can win the next election. He acknowledged for the first time that they're not the neck between the fall and the polls, which they are the last Red Sea polls of the Sunday Business Post put Fine Gael at 29% and Fianna Fáil at 28%. But he, the Taoiseach said that if they step up over the next while, that they really can go and win the next election and stay in government. He also urged them to start fundraising. There's going to be a big fundraising kick, saying that the Fine Gael coffers were a little bit more empty after the local and European election and will be even more so after the upcoming by-election. So everyone really in Leinster House on election footing and that's probably going to frame the next few months. Well, we covered that uh, election or that poll, the Red Sea poll you mentioned there earlier this week and we happened to have um, Fergus O'Dowd in studio that day and I said to him that uh, Fianna Fáil are snapping at your heels and he said, well, we're going to bite back. So that'll be interesting to see, will they? (laughs) But with the Brexit hanging over everything, I mean, is there a little more hope of a deal emerging? Would you think this morning there's a lot of talk about it? Um, I know there's, you know, differing views on that, but certainly the whole idea of a deal is is more and more at the centre of the conversation, isn't it? 
Uh, definitely, yeah. I think the, the tone has changed this week a little bit from what it had been in the last few weeks, which was pretty gloom and gloom, which was a lot of rhetoric out of the UK. Boris Johnson saying he'd die in a ditch rather than the extension. Uh, they were saying that they would leave on the 31st, come what may, Heather Highwater talks of them even breaking the law to do so by not requesting that extension if there's no deal after the EU summit. But this week, things have been a little bit more tempered. We had on Wednesday night, Arlene Foster meeting the Taoiseach and coming down off the rock, the DUP is on a little bit saying that maybe they could think about Northern Ireland only solutions, which could open the door to the backstop as long as the constitutional status of Northern Ireland was protected. Uh, yesterday, we had the Taoiseach and Boris Johnson uh, exchanging messages very briefly and agreeing to meet next week in New York at the UN summit. So th- there's some signs of a bit of movement. The UK also submitting, and this is my favourite new term of Brexit, I have to say, or that non-papers, whatever they are, to the EU, the apparently discussion points on how they could potentially end the impasse that we're at, talking about agriculture and customs. So there's a little bit of movement there. There's people talking more regularly and a bit of a step up in hope. But we, it has to be said as well, there's nothing concrete on the table at the moment from the UK. There is no uh, great white plan coming in to save Brexit and, and stop a no, a no deal and reach some sort of arrangement. So while there is some hope, it, it's with a, a hint of scepticism as well. You mentioned there the non-paper and that's very much at the heart of it all because so much of what Boris Johnson has said has been very much um, airy-fairy. Let's put it that way. He hasn't really committed to anything. He has always held out this possibility that he has some uh, great approach to the backstop that we haven't discussed yet, but we've seen nothing. And yesterday there were strong calls from Jan-Claude Juncker and others to put something in writing. So the non-paper is is very much the, the part of the problem that there's nothing definite being offered as an alternative. But we also discussed yesterday here in the programme with MEP Mairead McGuinness the idea that um, maybe this rhetoric you're referring to, the language changing, is that in a way of, of getting to a backstop by another name, putting the same uh, outline, the same objectives, but calling it something else in order to allow everybody, as you say, climb down the ladder of that rock they've put themselves on. Yeah, I mean, to quote Monty Python, we're going to see like a Judean backstop front or something, you know, something that does the same thing, but by a slightly but different name. something that, else, yeah. Exactly, yeah. That that might be where we're heading towards. And I think we have to see what's in the detail of, of what the UK has now submitted to the EU. Like, it, it could just be what they've been saying in the media, put down in writing to say that they have submitted something. Or, or it might actually be some concrete proposals. It's certainly a thought line in the UK that Boris Johnson is waiting until his own party conference is over the weekend after this because whatever he puts on the table in the meantime is just going to be shot down when they get into that Tory party conference and the the hard wing of the party that doesn't want a deal uh, will just scupper it so that he wants to wait until that's passed so that politically, domestically, he can actually get whatever proposals he has over the line. But that is leaving it very late and whether we do see some sort of backstop, I mean, we've kind of seen this week the middle ground shaping up. So Arlene Foster has come down a bit on what she was saying. Boris Johnson has acknowledged that there could be a Northern Ireland-only solution for agriculture. And the answer probably lies somewhere in the middle there. The problem is we don't know how to bridge that gap at the moment or how they will do so with enough certainty to protect the single market and keep the EU happy as well. Now you talk about the Conservative Party conference and again of course there's that idea that Boris Johnson is going to pull something out of the hat before that and we've been disappointed on that front before. Um, Tanish to Simon Coveney yesterday um, sort of played down the little bit of movement we saw from DUP leader Arlene Foster. Um, he said although the meeting was very positive it shouldn't be seen as a breakthrough so he was kind of suggesting a bit of caution is needed and then we're also seeing reports this morning that um, Leo Vradkar at the ploughing he kind of in an offhand way mentioned
mentioned to a security guard that he had a telephone conversation with the Prime Minister yesterday and that he'd be meeting him again, as you suggested. So it's like these back channels are still operating, aren't they, apart from the official meetings? Yeah, and, and you see it as well with the likes of, say, Pascal Donoghue meeting the British Chancellor, Sasha Javid, in Dublin yesterday. And that's the third time they've met in recent weeks. And those talks, I imagine, could be quite interesting to be a fly on the wall because Pascal Donoghue is a very key lieutenant of the Taoiseachs. Uh, and Sasha Javid was, at least with Boris Johnson, although there's been a little bit of a rift with them uh, in recent weeks on their Brexit position. So there's a lot of talks happening. And we're seeing kind of an interesting divergence as well in what Simon Coveney is saying and what the Taoiseach is saying. Not in any massive sort of a way, but for example, the Taoiseach came out in his British-Irish Chamber speech and acknowledged that there would have to be uh, goods checks near the border. Up until then, Simon Coveney had said absolutely not at all. The Taoiseach was a little bit more optimistic than the Taunashti yesterday. So there's, they're both involved in different talks with different people. The Taoiseach will be meeting Juncker and those kind of people, whereas the, the Taunashti is more involved with the foreign affairs uh, minister. So there's a small bit of divergence there. But I think that is because we simply don't know what is happening with the UK and because until they have something very concrete that they cannot address, uh, everyone is playing something of a guessing game. And what other issues will be getting attention uh, next week in the House? Obviously, the budget is coming. The the farmers issue still isn't resolved. We've schools striking today on on, on climate change. What kind of issues will dominate, do you think, now in in the week ahead? There's going to be quite a lot. I think we're going to hear a lot about climate change today, obviously with the strikers, but also next week, the, uh, half the cabinet nearly is travelling to New York for the UN summits, which includes a key summit on climate change. So that includes the Taoiseach, the Taunashta, Minister Richard Bruton, Captain Zappone, uh, and I, I believe Simon Harris and Helen McEntee as well. So there's quite a big contingent of ministers heading over there, and they're going to be discussing a number of issues, climate change, Brexit, UN Security Council update. So that's probably going to get quite a bit of the attention. You've also talked about the beef scandal. That seems to be winding down. Some of those protests are filtering away as well and Brexit is going to keep being one of the big issues. So there are some of the main ones that have been discussed in the Dáil this week but we're, we're also hearing uh, budget talks stepping up next week. It'll only be two weeks until Pascal Donna who's due to reveal the budget. We're hearing a little bit more about that today and that there won't be the five euro all around rise for social welfare payments this year because of of Brexit. So that's definitely going to pick up as the final nitty-gritty negotiations between the government and everyone else who wants a stake of the pie are hammered out. So quite a busy few weeks ahead leading up really to that crucial summit in the EU next month and then October 31st come what may. And just back for a moment to the school striking today, um, the politicians, a lot of them are, are supporting it. We've heard people say it's, 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 it's a good move by, by students, obviously because of the, 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 magn- the, the size and the scale of climate change, as we know. But then we have parents and schools concerned about the missed time and that. Do you think the politicians are to an extent uh, jumping on the bandwagon, coming out and, and saying that, yes, indeed, students should jump out of school today and, and go and strike? Yeah, they're trying to shield themselves from some criticism because they've done not a jot on climate change for the last seven years. So they, in some ways it's saying, yeah, good on you to, to insulate them from a, a little bit of criticism. Although Richard Bruton, to be fair to him, during all statements on climate change last night, did acknowledge that the government has failed up to now and that they are trying to ramp up work. He's travelling to the, the Youth Climate Summit in New York today and the UN Climate Summit that I mentioned next week. So there is an acknowledgement that more needs to be done, but they also now after the local elections, after the boost that the Greens have got, they've all cottoned on that they can't afford to oppose any measures for climate change or to really be seen to be doing nothing. There is votes in it, there will be votes in it at the next election. So I expect to see many politicians who have done not a jot in their careers for climate change at marches calling for more to be done for climate change today. 
And it is, as you say, uh, very much a hot topic. But interestingly, a lot of the international press, uh, The Guardian, The New York Times and that, again, questioning uh, children being exploited in this way as they're saying it. But I mean, obviously, young people don't see it that way themselves. They see it as voting for their own futures, don't they? Yeah, I mean, it depends on your point of view. I mean, a lot of young people do see it as a real hot button issue that it is the future. There's no point in growing up if we don't have a planet to grow up in. There will obviously be some people out there and some children on the pickets today who are just glad of the DOS day from school as we all were when we got out of school on a certain day. But I mean, you know, that's the, the whole point of a climate strike is that you do it on a weekday, that you do it on a day that you're, you're striking and you make a difference. And I've seen some interesting exchanges on, on Twitter in relation to that over the last while. Some people getting, and some parents and schools getting very exercised and others saying, you know what, you're dead right because uh, if they're not going to do it, who else is going to do it? Nobody else has been out on the street protesting climate change and making the ways that you need to do if you're going to get anything done. And you can understand parents' concerns with, uh, you know, them taking the DOS day, as you say. And indeed, there was an item on the radio this morning, I heard, and there was all of this kind of alarm siring and, you know, the klaxons behind uh, Greta Thunberg making her speech. It was very doom and gloom. You just would be concerned about the impact on young people. But just finally, uh, uh, Sean, before we let you go there, um, the meat protest again just to kind of touch on that for for the for the last couple of minutes that we have um 12 meat plants are still blockaded we thought yesterday that we saw a bit of a movement there but it's still ongoing um agriculture minister michael creed welcomed the call by by the president michael d higgins for the protesters to end their picket so everybody has got involved in this and yet we haven't really seen a conclusion to it as yet no, we have seen something of a dialing down over the last few days, as you mentioned. Some of the pickets being lifted, some of them still going on, and obviously some farms are not happy with the deal that's been reached on the table. The major farm bodies are all recommending it. So there's a little bit of split opinion. I think the majority opinion among farmers at the moment is that right, it's not perfect, it's not a great deal, but it's jumping off points. We can use this maybe to push forward to get better prices and have further talks without the need for jobs being temporarily let off, as we have seen in the last while but whether or not it escalates anymore is going to be hard to see I think the politicians are certainly glad that it didn't totally erupt at the ploughing championships there was this fear that there would be mass protests or some uh, big staged event when the Taoiseach and the agriculture minister went down that wasn't the case so incremental progress towards it the heat's a little bit gone off it uh, but whether it actually achieves anything long term for farmers I think that's a much bigger question Absolutely and it allowed people to enjoy uh, the ploughing as you say and and the lovely weather we've been having Sean Defoe our political correspondent thank you so much for joining us today Orla Carmody on LMFM before we come to the RD Bypass story, staff at a Navan recycling centre were stunned when they discovered an urn containing human ashes among the rubbish. The brown plastic container had a sticker displaying the name of the deceased James Liscombe. And our Meath Chronicle reporter, Sally Harding, has the story. Good morning, Sally. Good morning, Orla. How are you? I'm very good. I'm reading your story here in the Chronicle and also in the Mirror about how shocked the recycling centre staff were to discover this. Tell me what happened. I know. I mean, it's a fascinating story. Well, basically, it was um, a normal day at Navin Recycling Centre, or or so they thought. And um, a lorry with a container of objects, like household objects from a house clearance, um, arrived. And I suppose with that, there's a lot of normal um, things that you'd expect to find um, from a a rented house. Um, And among them was this urn that luckily one of the employees spotted and and recognised that it was in fact a container and that it was an urn. 
Um, so um, it was just so lucky that he came across it and there was a name um, on it as well. So um, obviously they weren't going to put that uh, with the rest of the waste and they, they kind of didn't know what to do about it at first. I mean, it's something that they've never come across um, in all the years in Navin Recycling Centre. So they were really, really shocked. Now, um, I know I, the staff at the recycling centre handled it very, very sensitively because the gentleman's name was on it. And the yeah. guard, they have said that um, they have successfully returned the urn to a family member. But do we know anything about this gentleman, James Liscombe, and how his remains would have ended up this way? Orla, I'd love to be able to give you more details. Um, I'm so curious about it myself. Um, I'm, I'm looking into it, but I actually don't have any details. I think the, the Gardaí were, you know, very respectful and they didn't want to give any more details other than to say that it has been returned to a family member. But I mean, it's just, it's so, it's so interesting to, you know, to think about what can happen in your life that you end up essentially going out with the rubbish. So, Well, I suppose in another way, we all go out with the rubbish in the end. But I suppose in this instance, it was an accidental. It sounds like it was accidentally gathered up among, as you say, other household uh, waste and what have you. But but clearly this would have been maybe a, a company that professionally emptied out a house because obviously if it was a family member, they would mm. know which things to keep, wouldn't they? Yeah, well, I mean, that's it. It was a rented house that was being cleared out and... Um, you know, for some reason, this urn with the ashes was was left behind by whoever had it in their possession. So um, we can only kind of speculate as to why it was left, why it wasn't, as you'd imagined it to be, you know, kind of uh, kept, um, you know, cherished and, and kept in, in good care. So I suppose, I mean, there's, there's many scenarios you can imagine as to, as to why that is. Um, I'm really fascinated by it so I'm going to keep following it up and hopefully find some more details about James uh, Liscombe. Now do we know do they have any CCTV footage of the, uh, the, the those materials being deposited at the uh, recycling centre? Yeah I believe so. Um, so when the Navin Recycling Centre actually contacted the guards, the guards um, came down straight away, they took it really seriously and I believe, yes, they, they got CCTV footage, so they were able to actually trace who delivered it and then trace it back to um, to a family member. So that's all I know as yes, but I'm uh, definitely going to keep following it up and, and hopefully... Um, find some more details about this man and you Indeed, know, there could be a very there could be a very interesting history there couldn't there I mean there, there has to be just by the nature of, of, of how we ended up at a recycling centre there has to be a good story there absolutely one way or the other All right Sally well thank you for joining us today with that story Sally Harding from the Meath Chronicle and indeed again uh, commending the recycling staff for the sensitive way they handled this and indeed for spotting it in the first instance Now if you've been with us on other occasions this week you'll know that we've been following closely the review of the RD bypass and coming up shortly residents representative Anne Lennon will be telling us why residents of the Mullins Town Road area are welcoming the review despite the risks of jeopardising the 35 million euro budget and seeing it going to another road project altogether. But first, let's hear reaction to the potential delay to the bypass construction from people on the streets of RD who spoke to LMFM's Helena Mullins yesterday. 
Well, I actually think it is very badly needed. We're waiting at least 20 years for it. And I know there's some problems with uh, out in the bog at that area. People, I think, are complaining about that. But that should be sorted. And we need that. Not now, but we should have got it yesterday. Well, a lot of people now are against it, you know. Um, I wouldn't like to see, now there's a lot of people who live out there, wouldn't like to see them blocked off, blocked off you know, but um, I wouldn't like to see it affecting people. The bypass would be good to the bog and it'd be great. It'd be great for the, the people in in the bog too, you know, because them are not a road and they're, th- they're very uh, dangerous to drive on. Yeah. You know, it'd be great if they did put, uh, make the road. And you're you're working in RD yourself. How yeah. do you feel about the, uh, the RD bypass? The town is very busy. It is. Um, I would say that it would take a lot of business away from the people stop driving through. Won't stop because of, because of the bypass. So you're against the bypass. Yeah. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. That's your. That's the opinion. And I know the town needs it but it will take a lot of business away from the, the town itself. Well, it would make a quite difference in the town. It would, yes, definitely it would. In what way? You probably don't want the trucks and big lorries going through the town as much, would you? But you look, at the, the, that's what's making the roads, like, you know, the traffic. That the traffic, like, you know, coming into the town and you're behind lorries and lorries and lorries. It would do a great job. Definitely it would, with the lorries coming into the town, like, you know, yeah would oh no yeah I, I, do, I do agree with it like yeah yeah but will it stop the lorries from coming into the town that's another thing will it block the lorries from coming into the town and go bypass up the road like you know the link road and all that like you know it's it. I think it's badly wanted because uh, when I get the bus to Seabray to the town it's only a quarter of a mile if I was only going down to the bank uh, it takes it takes ten minutes with the traffic and you can't get down on Friday with the traffic and they won't pay people they say that the lorries now won't 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 pay the bypass the the the, 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 the tariff. Okay, yeah. so you would like to to see the bypass yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, it's terrible. It's badly needed in the town. So uh, it's just very disappointing to hear that. What uh, benefits do you think a bypass would be for Ardy? Well, take a lot of the traffic out of it. Like it's takes it's gonna take to half an hour, forty minutes to get from one end of the town to the other there during the week, like you know. So it's definitely stopping a lot of people coming into town to do shopping and stuff. You know, a lot of people, go, it'd be quick to go to the dark or drop sometimes to get shopping, you know. So do you think that it wouldn't affect the businesses if there was a bypass? Oh, no, I think it'd only help. Like, if you, if you, the less traffic, it's easier to come in and park and, you know, you're not stuck in traffic for half an hour either, you know. Well, I think we definitely need it uh, because of the traffic situation. I think it's only small things that are stopping it, which will kick it down the road for another 20 years. For once, something should come to RD. Something should not be objected to. Something should not be kicked down the road. I don't even know what the problem is now, so just get it built. You know, that's all we need. Like, Do you work in the town yourself? We own this shop here. It's very good. And do you think that it would be beneficial for the local business that you have? Yeah, it would, because locals go elsewhere because of the traffic situation they go to towns up the street because or up the road because they can't get into RD they would prefer if they could easily get into their own town park rather than getting caught up in all the commuter traffic that's what we're hearing from our customers anyway 
and they're staying away from the centre of the town because it takes them a half an hour to get to the centre of the town with traffic going to the west or to Derry and all them places. So can I ask you as a shopper here, you're from the dog yourself but you're here shopping in RD? Yes. Tell us what your thoughts would be maybe on the RD bypass. It's actually postponed, as I said. What, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I suppose for the town, I suppose itself, I suppose it's probably a good thing, I suppose, sort of that they can keep, I suppose, people shopping in the village and things like that. So I suppose if it was bypassed, it would be much more difficult for cars maybe to come in this direction if there was a bypass in place and things like that. So I suppose at the moment for the shops in the town and in the village area, I suppose it's probably a good thing at the moment that they can sell people are coming into this area. And how did you find the traffic when you came into RD to shop? Um, the, actually earlier on there now it was actually fine so it was, although normally it can be quite difficult just getting through RD, but earlier on it was actually fine today so it was, I got straight in no problems And what about yourself, you're selling flowers here oh, yeah. on the streets of RD how, how would you feel about the bypass? The RD um, bypass? I think it should go ahead, yes uh, it'll stop the trucks coming through the town that's really it <laughs> you, just, you don't like the trucks coming through the town it just well, causes obstruction whole, yeah. yes. I'm toning up the whole you know people can't get through and then they don't come into town they'll maybe go to Dundalk or somewhere because it's easy, mm. easier access and you'll have pe- more people buying your flowers yes of course I did, <laughs> I did meet somebody in Dundalk one Friday and she said I come here all the time I used to come into RD up to Supervalu but it took so long to get in, it was easier to go to Dundalk than to come into RD to shop. So then she shops every week in Dundalk. And that was our reporter Helena Mullins out and about in the town of RD yesterday listening to the concerns of people about the bypass and whether it is going to be delayed or not and you could hear very clearly there the traffic going through the town so it is obviously very very heavy traffic every day um, out and about in uh, RD. So coming up after the break we'll be speaking to Anne Lennon who's a representative of the community groups in Mullins Town and Towns Park areas which are north of RD and they're the people with the cul-de-sacs that will be cut off from the town if the proposed bypass goes ahead without the review. Orla Carmody on LMFM. Now we're joined by Anne Lennon, who's representing the uh, the residents of Mullins Town and Towns Park areas, which is north of ID or RD. And you've brought me in some maps here, Anne. Thank you. And I'm seeing how flooded the area is. Is that occasional or is that a lot of the time? Uh, good morning to you and thank you for inviting me in. If you could just move a little oh, closer sorry, to the mic sorry. there, please, Anne, that'd be lovely. Is, Perfect. Yeah. Thank you. That's Is that good. better? Yeah. Sorry. Um, thank you for having us in. I um, represent the community on the wrong side of the proposed cul-de-sacs and our focus was initially and and is remains on the removal of the cul-de-sacs. But in answer to your question about the flooding, it has worried us considerably over the years that the flooding has progressively got worse year on year, which is probably uh, associated with the climate change or whatever. But it's um, a weird coincidence that the flooding is actually on the trajectory of the road. But we have been assured by the engineers that they can um, raise the road above the flooding. So we hope they're right, but a lot of the people in the community who live near the flood zone are very concerned. So there are concerns around the flooding, but that wasn't specifically 
our focus. Now, because they have suggested cul-de-sacs there, which to all intents and purposes cut you off from the town, is it because of the flooding that they can't do underpasses, for example, to connect you? No, no. um, Orla, the the flooding is over a little bit further, although it would impact on the cul-de-sac engineering solution over on the Towns Park Road, but absolutely not on the Mullinstown Road. The two cul-de-sacs have separate sets of issues and concerns associated with them individually and then jointly. And individually on the Towns Park Road, the cul-de-sac that was proposed, and I'm old enough to know the initial proposals in the late 1990s. Going back years and years, we're talking about this, (laughs) indeed. In the late 1990s and would have attended the first public meeting, the first public uh, consultation, which Louth County Council properly set up. And at that meeting, um, there were five routes to be looked at and uh, it evolved that they picked one route, which happened to be the one on on near to where I live at Artna Livery. But they also picked another route on the southern side to alleviate the traffic on the southern end of RD. But somewhere that one got shelved over the years. But when they picked the route, we saw eventually a map, but was back in the old library days in RD and was huge. It was up on a wall, but removed from us. And it didn't look as though there were cul-de-sacs on it. Now, I I understand from the council and I trust their bona fide in this. They say they were on it, but we didn't see them. So as the years rolled on and my view is that it almost went into hibernation and we were certainly benefited greatly by the quality of the end the link road you know the N33 link road that helped us a lot but they still hoped to do the bypass so eventually then I understand the money was made um, available by Minister Ross and we were all delighted including our end of the community rural RD to the northwest. we had no problem with the bypass and still don't in essence because RD does need a bypass um, so when we looked at the maps closely which came to us through computers nowadays you could focus in and that's when we saw the, the big worry which was the proposed cul-de-sacs um, on the design of the drawings And then we began to worry and we talked to each other and we realised that these cul-de-sacs would cut us off from the town. It would breach our connectivity. I'll come to that now in a second, Dan. Now, as we heard in our report there from Helena, the noise level and the traffic is very strong. A lot of the business community are saying everybody is delayed by a half an hour to get into town anyway with the the back-to-back traffic. So if there's a little delay for people in your community having to go around, it's nothing more than anybody is used to in any event and that the benefit to the town would far outweigh uh, your issues. Well, that would be if there was no better way to do it and if there was no options. There is options. The cul-de-sacs aren't needed and they're not justified. The road can be built with engineering solutions into it that allow our habitual access into RD. So putting a route in through the cul-de-sacs won't spoil or prevent the bypass happening. 
it just it's not it, it would be only be if they couldn't engineer out the cul-de-sacs so but with the cul-de-sacs as they stand it means you have to go around or something but yes, you're saying two, no there are engineering solutions to oh, keep absolutely. going the way you've gone before yes and build the, the road higher build bridges well, build the, underpasses the, the road comes from Galway to Meath Yes. And this is the only two roads in that whole stretch that could be cul-de-sacked. It's just illogical and unnecessary. And the two sets of problems um, that they cause are slightly different on each road. On the Mullinstown Road and the Towns Park Road, when you go back through the townlands, there's approximately 2,000 of a population. Clonkeen Parish. That's which, a rural hinterland yes, of RD. And the statistics in the 2006 Louth County Development Plan show the population in Clonkeen increased by 9% in 2006. These things are examples of what has changed dynamically since the plan was first designed. And there's also sports clubs yes. out in your area the, that need to access the town? There is. There's the Sean McDermott's, there's the RD Celtic. Um, in addition... And there would be young people going training there Tuesdays oh, and Thursday nights it's, and they'd be in and out all the time. It's alive with... with and it's lovely access. to see the young mm. people. Sport mm. is so healthy and so good. But on our on the Mullinstown Road where I live is RD Coach Trim and that's a business. It's actually the biggest employer in RD. With almost so all of those people potentially could be delayed going 100 to work. people, up to 100 staff per day travel to RD Coach Trim. It contributes 1.8 million to the business community of RD between the salaries of the staff and the purchases of supplies in D-side or motor factors, wherever you go in the town, they get their supplies there. They would be cut off. It would be easier for them to go to Fraser's in Kings Court. So that's what would be. And I have to ask you, um, the residents that you represent here today, you're being to some extent um, scapegoated, I would imagine, that it's been pointed at you that the whole delay or the whole potential loss of the motorway is at your door. There's more to it than this. There well, we, we don't feel that, to be honest. Oh, good. Because, no, absolutely not. God, you're very reasonable. We, no, because we never intended to stop the bypass. All we ever asked from we realised it April of 2018 was that the cul-de-sacs would be engineered out. Because, for example, my aged neighbour beside me goes three times a week to RD daycare centre. That bus needs to come out twice a day with her. The school's bus... And in the current plan, what would it add to her journey specifically if it had to go around? It would mean she would have to be ferried out onto the N2, which has almost 15,000 vehicles per day on it, back across onto the new road, which is the N52, which the Louth County engineers have told us would have about 5,000 vehicles per day on it, and then turn back down our road to come up to pick her and up what is the length of day. that journey compared to the current journey? In, in total, the length is probably an additional three kilometres. But the length isn't so much, it's the hassle it of the journey dependent. and the roundabouts and everything. Whereas now she's 1.8 kilometres into the town and that would cease. The other problem, if I take another example, is the school's bus, which is very significant. The school's bus has been there since Stormonstown School closed, which I attended. And the school's bus is run by Bus Erin and Bus Aaron 
do a loop which this route allows. They go up to the Bog Cross, turn right down Towns Park and pick up in total between the community and uh, Talonstown over 50 children. Their school's bus will cease if the cul-de-sacs go ahead. All right. Finally, Anne Lennon, you sat in on the Oireachtas Transport Committee hearing. Um, Were you surprised at what was said or was there anything that came out that that alarmed you? Truthfully and honestly, I was very heartened because we had engaged with Loud County Council over the last two years and we had positive engagement going. In fact, we were due to have a meeting on the 13th of September with them and they were working through our issues and had addressed one, which was the Towns Park, and they were coming back to us on the 13th with a resolution to the cul-de-sac on the Mullinstown Road and we were having a very positive, um, workable, business-like arrangement with them, genuine and effective. And then out of the blue there was word that there was a review. That didn't make sense. We don't understand that there's a missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle here. Then we heard they were being called in front of the Oireachtas Committee. That again didn't make sense. So I was privileged to be allowed uh, because Declan Brannock had got uh, done a lot of work with us and he had got me a pass to be an observer. So when we were there, I heard TII clearly say and very um, professionally that their concern was a review certainly it seemed of the cul-de-sacs but I got a a sense that there was a wider review of some of the overall design issues which we have no knowledge of and in tandem with that the CEO of the Loud County Council reported that she is fully committed to the road and that the review would, would happen between now and Christmas then they would look at the design and see could they upgrade it and make sure it's 2020 standards and fit for purpose. So we were very heartened and her view, the CEO, was it could be done within a year and they were heavily committed and heavily invested in completing the bypass. So All we're right. lost. All I right. don't understand. And Lennon, I know lots of good words spoken there and as you say, what is the actual meaning behind it? And hopefully you will find uh, the missing piece of that jigsaw puzzle in the next in the coming weeks and we'll take a break. Orla Carmody on LNFM. And plenty of you have been texting indeed and we're joined as usual now by producer Marie Kearns with your comments and calls. What do you have for us, Marie? Lots, Orla, lots. Where do I start? Well, first of all, Pat from Mulbriggan was in touch. Just a couple of points on the government's work on climate change. With their big salaries, Orla, they'd have no problem paying the huge amount of money that electric cars cost. But how many of them have an electric car? That would be an interesting survey, says Pat from Mulbriggan. On the students out of school to protest, maybe next time they can protest about the 10,000 people who are homeless, the hundreds of people sleeping on the streets or the elderly patients spending days on chairs and trolleys in hospital corridors. After all, they will soon be looking for somewhere to live themselves, says Pat. So the poor children are supposed to go out and protest every day and not go to school at all. An interesting idea. (laughs) Joe says, can't believe that the students are allowed to leave school to go out and protest. They had plenty of time to protest during the summer holidays and they didn't. They would be best suited to protest against drugs. That has a more immediate effect on us. Uh, On the same topic, we had a listener on who says, good on the young people of Ireland going out today to make their voices heard. I wonder, could some of you in the media ask them when they're out in the streets to maybe consider 
not taking long showers like they normally do and maybe switching off the lights on occasion says a bemused parent <laughs> I'm laughing at the long showers I go on about long showers in my house to beat the band Oh but look let's not be down on the young people Indeed. more power to them I say but anyway they're the ones that we got in in relation to that just on Brexit uh, Margaret says Orla we are fed up listening to Brexit we know we know uh, I really hope that a deal can be reached that Ireland is happy with and then we can just get on with our lives again because people are very worried. I know of someone who's working in a company and they're not taking on any more employees until they see what happens. So that is a real cause for concern. I think Margaret. I think it's a very valid point there of Margaret's. It's like the whole of business of government here and in the UK for months has been Brexit. And does anything else get any attention? I understand that point of view very well. Tom, just finally, I'll finish on this one. Tom says, um, in relation to the talk of the election next year, the general election next May is being muted, muted and all of the parties seem to be on an election footing. But he's wondering if, say, there's no deal at the end of October and that the UK is given an extension to come up with an agreement, will there still be an election next year? Because Fianna Fáil was saying all along that they wouldn't pull the plug um, because of Brexit and what might happen. So he thinks that's something else that should be taken into consideration. Well, obviously, the dull term is up at the early part of next year. So there has to be an election between now and the spring at some point. The question is, the million dollar question, when will it be called? Marie Kearns, thanks for joining us uh, with all of those texts and comments. And please do keep them coming. As you know, you can always text us on 086 1800 658 or phone us on 1850 And we really enjoy getting your comments. Now, a school within a school in Dundalk is finding itself squeezed out, much to the concern of parents and pupils who have opted to have their secretary education through Irish. Colosh the Lou sits within the larger Colosh de Cucullin School and it has found teachers withdrawn and a reduction in services. They're holding a rally this Saturday in Dundalk, supported by Conor Nguelga, which will be a celebration of Irish music and culture, reminiscent of the Fla Ceol, perhaps, to draw attention to their situation. And we're joined now by a parent involved in the campaign, Kaylee Ward. And you're very welcome to the programme, Kaylee. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, lovely to be here. So, yes, I mean, speaking of students being out protesting and fighting for, you know, their rights, um, we will be taken to the streets in Dundalk again tomorrow. And um, this time more in a celebration manner. Um, our, our students are passionate, our kids are, and our parents are passionate about the Irish language so we will be taking to Market Square at 12 o'clock tomorrow to celebrate that. Um, you'll see you mentioned the FLA. Um, I worked in the FLA, I work in Loud Volunteer Centre and I'm wearing my Laura Gale Galum t-shirt so anyone who went to the FLA may have seen that in, a, in the Lawrence Centre. Um, so we are having, it's it's kind of like a pop-up Gale talk but it's it's a celebration of the language and the culture. Uh, it's culture night tonight of course um, so you know if anyone's interested in, in the culture, the cultural aspect of things come along. Um, the event itself will be, you know, as I said, a, a pop-up Gale talk. We'll be wearing our Laura Gale Gillum t-shirts um, for anyone that wants to come and along. And music and a festival sort of a spirit. There will, there will. It's it's very laid back and relaxed. It's an informal kind of open mic style. Um, a lot of cultist musicians will be coming along and anyone who's interested in coming along and supporting us. Now, the more serious point, obviously you made a personal choice to send your child to a, a Gael school as I did with my four mm-hmm. but then you also opted for an Irish language secondary education and for the first couple of years that has worked out but tell me what's happened. Well 
you know, it's it's very hard to explain to somebody who's who's only coming to an hour who's hearing to it because we're as parents we're baffled. Uh, to be to be frank, um, as to what has happened, so everything was great up until June. The kids finished school and went back in August, and their Colostalu uniforms were issued with Colostalu diaries, uh, but are, they're no longer being referred to as Colostalu, and they're no longer being taught in Irish. Um, so, how did it happen that the school was within another school? Just fill us in on that one for people who are not familiar. Okay, with so it. the background to it is is that a number of in- individuals approached Alamy TB in 2011-2012 with the hopes of opening a game Colossia in Dundalk and Colossia emerged. It opened in 2013, I think I'm correct in saying and it didn't have its own roll number. It went under the roll number of, of Bush, um, which is out in, in Cooley. Um, it was to apply for its own roll number, etc. But then after a year of the school being in operation, um, it was decided that they would open an English school and, and there would be two schools on the campus that was being so built. So your original intention was to set up this school as a parents-led initiative, a bit like the uh, Educate Together or any of those initiatives where, where parents look for a specific form of education. Well, it was, it was, um, it was I suppose, spearheaded by parents and by, by local politicians and it was taken under the patronage of LMETB. So it is an LMETB school. Um, as, I, as I said, it was to apply for its own roll number until it was then decided that they would go with an English speaking school also and obviously with with Irish language education not being at the forefront So the you were English to share the school. facilities and there were going to be two halves to this school and there would be the, those that opted for the Irish language education and the others so you would just share facilities Exactly and look parents were well aware that um, this school didn't have Gael Colossia status it has in its status and we were aware of this last year also I know um, that, that LMETB are now referring it to the in within Colosh to Cúholan rather than Colosh to Lou. Um, even so though that's a centre within a college rather than a separate college. Yes, yeah. yes. It's an immersive Irish language um, in it within the college. How many children are being educated in this way currently? Well, at the start of the year, there were just under 70 students. There is currently, I believe, 47 students. So we're four weeks into the school year and I suppose why I don't my maths isn't isn't but coming to me but off. a quarter of this year. Did you have a fall off because of this upheaval, do yes. you think? Definitely. Oh absolutely. So they've gone elsewhere those students to look for an Irish language education well some of them have gone but some of them have just left because of, of the you know the atmosphere in the school um, I saw one one parent had sent in a letter to the school their child was leaving as of yesterday and you know they were citing that the child was not happy his friends had left you know he wasn't happy being taught in English he was being taught in Colossia Cúholan with classmates that he's not familiar with um, I know in my own case my own son is being taught one particular class in Colossian and he doesn't want to go to that class. I know that yesterday and he didn't tell me beforehand he told me when he came home from school he spent his, his time in the bathroom rather than going to the class. So you know it's we, do, we don't know as parents what exactly is so this going on in the school. So this school experiment just hasn't worked. Clearly well, if you're running a Gale school you need to do it in its own premises is that what you're suggesting? Well I, I don't know what the answer is and and um, there was a meeting held with, with um, LMATB on Wednesday where we were looking for um, I suppose assurances but also looking to know what the plan is um, in particular for exam year students so my own son is doing his junior cert this year he's in third year he's learned in Irish up to now now he is receiving education for three subjects through Irish which is more than most in the school um, a lot of them only learning Irish through Irish some of them Irish and geography um, my own son is also getting art through Irish as well, but that's an optional and subject. Obviously, that's depending on the teacher availability and their own level of Irish. But what did the Loudmead Education Training Board tell you at this meeting? Well, nothing that we can accept as being 
you know, an appropriate resolution to the case. I mean, there is conflicting um, conflicting statements made um, and, and their opening statement they made a commitment to Colossalu and Irish medium education but later in the meeting we were uh, well, I wasn't at the meeting but we were informed that Colossalu does not exist and it will only be referred to henceforth as the Enid within Colossalu Q Holland. So conf- conflicting um, information we've also been informed that um, the Irish the Irish part of the school is not the priority so um, for instance there are Irish speaking teachers that are not deployed to Colossalu, they're only deployed to Colossalu Holland um, So they are there and they are. They could potentially be available but they're yes. just not being deployed. Yes, we, we've, we have been informed that the priority is that the English speaking students um, will get you know, the, edu- the educational resources ahead of the, the, um, the Irish speaking students. Now you have said that you're the only Irish medium secondary school between Balbriggan and Belfast so it, it's it's a tough road for you if this looks like it's being sort of swallowed up and this is the end of the road. Well, or will you fight on? We will fight on. Um, I think um, a lot of the parents have made the commitment that we will keep the kids in the school. We want the, we want our kids to remain in that school and they have been happy up to now in that school. Um, some parents have obviously taken their kids out and, and, you know, you do have to put the well-being of your children before, you know, the fight to save the school at the end of the day, no matter how much you, you don't want to lose that resource in, in the town or in the area. Um, there is a Gael Colossia in Monaghan and there is one in Balbriggan, but for most of us, that's just not. Yeah, obviously. And your rally then on Saturday is obviously to, to take up something very positive out of a negative. And all we can say to you is Ganairi live with that and with the campaign. And the rally is in Market Square in Dundalk starting at 12 noon and I think the objective is for all of us to turn up and uh, win three loss day near York to do the best we can to, to support you. Yes and just to mention as well a little bit of a shout out to Parkrun and Dundalk they're having their Parkrun Osgilga at 9.30am tomorrow in the DKIT playing fields. Uh, all students and parents will be participating in that as well at 930 in the morning if anyone wants to join us. So if you're a runner get out and uh, run Osgilga if you can do that yes. as well. Run or walk. Kayleigh Ward thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks very much. Orla Carmody on LMFM. Still to come on the programme, the rise in domestic violence and finding direction in uncertain times. But first, an anti-abortion group with alleged connections to the US has planned a 40-day protest outside the National Maternity Hospital in Dublin, Hollis Street. The master of the hospital, Professor Shane Higgins, who previously spent a number of years at the Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda, has circulated staff with details of the protest, which will begin next Wednesday, and said that the Hollis Street would do everything necessary to ensure ensure that staff and patients can enter and leave the hospital with dignity and privacy. Orla O'Connor is Director of the National Women's Council of Ireland and she joins us now. Good morning, Orla. Good morning, Orla. Now, you've concerns about safety zones around hospitals where abortion facilities are available and the delay in legislation to this effect. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is a real concern to have protests outside our National Maternity Hospital And, you know, as part of the whole um, discussion, debate on the referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment, the government promised that there would be safety zone legislation so that women wouldn't be um, intimidated or, you know, experience real distress in terms of, you know, accessing what is now public service. Um, And I think, you know, it is really disappointing for us. Uh, that the you know the government have just really put this on the long finger, and only yesterday we saw the the program for legislation for the autumn period, and it's not listed as a priority piece of legislation. And I think this protest really highlights how important it is 
for the government to make a priority of that legislation and put in place those safety zones. Now, it's uh, reported in the media this morning that a spokesperson for the Department of Health said that Simon Harris was committed to bringing forward this legislation for safe zones. And the spokesperson also said that he assures women and healthcare staff that there is existing legislation in place to protect them and to protect patients. So what is this existing legislation and why do we need to upgrade it? Well, I think what we're looking for is legislation that would prevent people from having any protest outside those public services. And while there is legislation in place, I mean, legislation is about sort of public disorder. Um, so, so that doesn't cover this. And, you know, the experience um, already, there have been some protests outside um, the National Maternity Hospitals. And, and we know that it has been distressing. And I think the thing is that, of course, people have a right to protest. But protest in terms of, you know, whether that's outside government buildings or the Department of Health, but actually, you know, it, trying to intimidate women who are accessing the service. And we must remember as well, you know, that within our National Maternity Hospital, there are women going in there for many, many reasons. And, and it is distressing. I mean, for example, some of the um, protests that were held um, in previous weeks, you know, they had small white coffins. And that's very distressing for, for women for women going in who might have had a miscarriage, who might have a stillbirth, and women accessing ab- abortion. And, and that is not, I mean, it's, it's simply, it's not acceptable. This is now a public health service. And I, I mean, I think it's good to hear, you know, the Department of Health response saying, yes, you know, they are going to go ahead with this legislation. But we have been hearing that now for at least the last nine months. So, you know, the government have had a year, they've had more than a year really to think about this and to get the right legislation up there. And, and we need to see it and we need to see it more of a priority and more urgency behind it. Now, the organisation that's staging the protest 40 Days for Life, they said they're going to protest from 7am to 7pm um, every day for 40 days. And they have said that they will remain the far side of the road. But that's not uh, enough of an exclusion zone as far as you are concerned. No, I mean, we think it's, it's, it's really inappropriate to, to be outside what is, our, you know, our National Maternity Hospital. And as I've said, people are going in there for many reasons. And I think, Orla, as well, that, like, you know, we are, OK, we're a year on in terms of providing, and we're not even a year in terms of providing abortion services because it really is only since January. And, you know, we know that in, in all the discussion around the referendum that abortion in Ireland really was surrounded with a lot of stigma, there was a lot of judgment on women. And, and that, you know, that all takes a long time to go away. So having these protests, and I mean, obviously that's why they're doing it, is to really up that ante and really provoke those, those feelings in women. And we think that's really wrong and it's harmful. And as I said, of course people have a right to protest, but not in this way. You know, this is about women who are accessing a service and, and, and they're women in need of that service. And, and as you say, it's, it's highlighting the, the abortion aspect of the service. But as you say, it's ignoring all of the women who, who are there with very difficult pregnancies, hyperemesis, uh, stillbirth, as you say, um, miscarriage, late miscarriage and all of the trauma and, and to, to go th- past a, a protest. The master of uh, the Hollis Street chain, Higgins, said in his circular, it's not an appropriate place for a political protest of this kind. So he's very firm that I suppose that even across the road or at a remove, it's not enough. Just just, just don't have the protest there in the first instance. I think that seems to be the word. Yeah, I, 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 I think he's, you know, he's, he's so right. And I mean, obviously, you know, he clearly knows, you know, all of it, the patients in the hospital, all of the women in the hospital. And also, I think it's unfair as well on the staff to be faced with that every day going into work. 
Um, but, you know, there are, and I mean, you know, I would be a person who would have protested so much on many issues around women's rights, and there are places, appropriate places to do it in terms of marches, or, you know, if you're not happy with a decision that was made in terms of the referendum, well, then it's about protesting outside the doll or government buildings. But this is not the place in terms of a hospital, and it is causing distress, and we, we believe it really is harming women, and it's wrong, and that's why the government needs to really, you know, they need to make a priority. They need to take action. We've been hearing a lot of talking that they were going to do it. And, and I think it's really unfortunate, actually, that it's not in place for this protest now. All right. Orla O'Connor of the National Women's Council of Ireland. Thank you for joining thank us you, with Orla. that this morning. Now, coming up next, the motor industry has had a very difficult road ahead, no pun intended, with potential changes in VRT and the impact of Brexit likely to place as many as 10,000 jobs at risk. The Society of the Irish Motor Industry believes that the motor industry is in its most vulnerable position since 2008. And we're joined now on the line by Brian Cook, who's the Director General of the Society of the Irish Motor Industry. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Ora. So, trouble times ahead for you yeah well it's been it's been a difficult two or three years since since the brexit vote and new car sales have dropped in each of the last three years um and last year we had actually an increase in vrt in the budget so um in the context of a falling new car market that was very difficult to understand and with changes to emissions testing there's a fear that there's going to be an increase in vrt again in 2020 which uh, along with a a hard deal Brexit could see you know an increase in used imports and a further significant deterioration in new car sales. Now you've said that uh, 250,000 cars uh, come in a year uh, in Vord with uh, from the UK that don't meet the EU emission standards. What's the total number uh, well, of the cars two, coming in? There's 250,000. That's since uh, 2016. Um, so uh, this, this year we'll have about 100,000 uh, used imports coming in. Um, uh, and about two-thirds of those, 65,000 of those, don't meet the latest EU emission standards. So and why is it so attractive for people to bring in a car from the UK? Well, I suppose there's two reasons. The first is the uh, the weakness of sterling arising from Brexit. It automatically makes them about 15% cheaper than they were uh, before before the Brexit vote. And the second reason is is the high levels of VRT. VRT is higher on a new car than it is on a used import. So it actually discourages people from buying a new car, which means they either hold on to their car for longer or alternatively, they, they, they look for a, a cheaper import. Now, obviously, it's in the government's interest to encourage us to buy new cars rather than imports because a new car can generate €6,000 in tax and we lose out to all of these cars brought in from abroad. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's right, Orla. Like, oh, just over €10,000 is the average uh, tax take on a new car on a used import. It's about 3500 so if you substitute just even 10,000 of those imports for, for new cars, uh, the government would generate an extra 65 million um, um, in, in, in revenue in, in one year alone. So I think it, particularly in the context, again, we're going to have a very difficult budget this year because of, because of the potential of a no-deal Brexit. I think every penny counts. And I think 65 million or 130 million, if it was 20,000 cars, is a significant amount of money they could do it. So if they put an increase on the VRT now, it's a short-term gain, but it's a long-term loss. Well, I actually think it's, it, there won't even be a gain in the short term because it'll actually reduce car sales even further. So they might get more per car, but in total, if there's fewer new cars sold, they'll actually end up with less less revenue. So it will be counterproductive, particularly in the, in the current climate. 
Now, uh, you've said that as many as 10,000 jobs are at risk. Is that right across the motor industry in terms of sales, servicing, the whole run? Yeah, that, that's across everything. Um, our most recent experience, and I think you mentioned that you at the start about the difficulties we had in 2008, uh, we lost 15,000 jobs between 2008 and 2012. So we've got a lot of those jobs back in recent years, but um, it's across all all parts of the business because new car sales, they actually generate trade-ins for used cars. Uh, that actually gives work to the service department to create finance income. So a new car sales affects the, the whole spectrum of, of the motor industry. And also, the important thing, the motor industry has uh, has employment in every town and village in Ireland. So it's not just... It's not just a Dublin or a Cork base. And they're very often uh, family businesses and very rooted in the community. Finally, uh, Brian Cook, uh, 2020 number plate, will that give a little bit of a boost? It would be such a nice thing to have a 2020 number plate if you could afford it. Yeah, well, I, I think um, um, the behavioural experts tell me that 2020 should have been should have been actually you know, a real plus for the motor industry in terms of the plate and in terms of new car buying. But I think, you know, Brexit and any tax increase could would more than offset that. So, so look, we, we're waiting for the budget in two or three weeks' time. Um, and hopefully there won't be a tax increase. Hopefully Brexit will go better than, than, than we all expect, but fear it won't be. So whatever, whatever the impact of the 2020 plate, I think it's going to be a difficult year for, for motor retailers. Brian Cook, Director General of the Society of Irish Motor Industry. Thanks for joining us this morning on LMFM. Thanks, Orla. Orla Carmody on LMFM. Now, there's a great quote from legendary artist Pablo Picasso, which I really like personally, and it says, The purpose of life is to find our gifts. The meaning of life is to give them away. It's an interesting thought. Nowadays, businesses and all kinds of concerns are trying to define their purpose as a way of keeping staff motivated and feeling that they're vital aspects of the the whole business effort. And our next guest is the co-author of a book called Find Your Why, a practical guide for discovering purpose for you and your team. He's a former fighter pilot and a motivational speaker and he joins us now. Good morning, Peter Docker and welcome to Ireland. Good morning, Oren. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. And you've just walked off the stage in Dublin where you were speaking to business leaders on the topic of thriving in times of uncertainty and you're bang on the money with Brexit and uh, the potential loss of jobs and the threat of no a border back on our island. We definitely need your wisdom, Peter. What have you got to say to us? Well, I don't know if I've got all the answers to life, but uh, yes, thriving in certain times, what, what, a, what a topical thing to be talking about. And for me, you know, uncertainty can occur to us in one of two ways. It's something that runs towards us and we're faced with it, or it's something we choose to run towards ourselves. And in either, ki- either case, uh, we thrive when we have resilience in those sorts of situations. So what I was talking about was how to choose to run towards uncertainty and see it as an opportunity and a strength and how to build resilience to help you through it. So you're suggesting that when we have something looming ahead of us that's making us anxious or stressed or worried, if we sort of put our head in the sand, ostrich style, it makes it worse. Whereas if we just tackle it head on, we we will feel better. Well, we can always put our head in the sand. That's certainly one option. But... uh, uh, the opportunity is to run towards uh, the the situation. That's when we make great strides as individuals and as teams. You know, there's just two things in the world, only two. There is content and there is context. Content is the stuff that we do, the things that we say, the work that we're engaged in. But it has no meaning whatsoever without context. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. 
Uh, we have all the puzzle pieces on the table. That's the content. But it's only when we see the picture on the box and we get the context that those puzzle pieces make sense. And this is the point about running towards uncertainty. We're not very clear about the picture on the box, what we stand for, what we believe in, our why, as I call it, then that helps us make sense of all of those puzzle pieces. And it helps us to get our head out of the sand, actually, and to focus and remind ourselves of the big picture, the contribution and the impact that we want to make in the world. And before you became a leadership uh, speaker and and motivational speaker and trainer, uh, Peter, you were a military pilot. What was the most uncertain thing you faced in that role? Well, there were quite a few uncertain things. You know, I I mainly flew large aircraft um, carrying uh, 150 people or so. And there were one or two times, and particularly the emergencies that you have, which, you know, I flew for many years, so you can't fly without facing one or two emergencies, many of which passengers don't know. But I was faced with a situation when uh, the, the landing gear, the wheels, did not come down after a long flight. And that's a little bit disappointing when that happens, because uh, it's not the usual case. And it More than rarely. disappointing, I'd say. Well, Horrifyingly scary. <laughs> yes, but the, the thing is, what, what helped us through there was that all of the crew, both the flight deck and the cabin crew, who do a remarkable job, um, helped each other and the passengers to figure it out. Even when things didn't go as planned, when uh, the systems, the backup systems didn't work, and we were faced with having to crash land the airplane. And yes, I... I I lined up on the the approach to land, knowing that we were going to crash land, and I felt calm. And that's because I felt that everybody else around me was, uh, well, I've had my back. We're all focused on the same thing, making this as safe as we possibly could, so as we could all walk away safely. And it was that feeling that helped us to get through. And we, not literally, but we, we ran towards, we took that challenge on inspired by the context, which is we need to get everybody home safe at the end of the day. So you were so focused on your solution, you weren't really thinking about the problem in the moment. Oh, yes. I mean, you have to deal with the individual elements of the problem. But when you take a step back and remind yourself the big picture, the big picture here, which is everybody going home safe, then it helps you to overcome those challenges. Um, rather than getting um, well, tunnel vision on some of the individual components. Um, I suppose I, I should let you know that uh, 10 seconds before the touchdown, the crash landing, for reasons that to this day none of us know, the wheels magically came out. And we don't know why. So a little bit spooky, a little bit wonderful. But uh, in, in Ireland, we'd say nice, somebody but... was watching over you. Somebody was watching well, over you in that moment. Maybe so. You know, away from uh, business and obviously commercial life and that career you had uh, previously, and then you moved into leadership development. But why should an individual look to find their why? What, what, what is in it for us? Well, building on the quote that you gave in your introduction, or you know, there's another one from Mark Twain. He said, "The two most important days in our life: the day that we are born and the day that we discover." We find why. out why exactly. Yeah. And this is this is what really fires me up. You know, my individual why, my single sentence, which captures the reason I get up every day, I express it as to enable people to find their extraordinary 
They can do extraordinary things. And what I mean by that is I, I really light up when I can see people being able to connect with their natural talents or things that they're passionate about, or businesses too, in fact, but businesses are just collections of individuals, so it's about the individual. And when we can help those people put what comes naturally to them into words, what they're passionate about, then they go on to, to achieve extraordinary things. And it is the most empowering thing that I've ever come across, um, because it helps us to define ourselves not by what we do, but why we do it. It helps us to define ourselves by the contribution and the impact that we make in the world. And it helps us then to be able to make choices in life, whether it's at work or at home, make choices to do things that just act as proof of what we believe. And that then becomes something that is truly inspirational, not only for the individual concern, but for those around them who watching them. But if we're very stressed out, Peter, and I'm not arguing with anything you say, but if we're very Mm. stressed out in the day to day and just getting to work and getting the kids out to school and, you know, do we have time to sit back and think about our why? Well, um, some people will think not. And it is the most valuable time that you can spend. Now, to get to um, uh, a working draft of your single sentence can take, well, less than a day, a few hours. And yes, it can be the turning point for your life in order to understand why things in your life have felt great, why things have felt less fulfilling, and then be intentional about choosing the ones that do fulfill you. And, you know, let let me be clear about this. This is not about um, loving every moment or liking every moment, I should say. You know, um, let's put it in the family context, since you mentioned the family. Family is a great example of where this can work. Because let me take my two children, they're grown up now, but um, I didn't like everything they did every day, but I still love them. And it can be the same in the work that we do. We don't necessarily like what we do every day, but we can still love it. And that helps us over the hard times because we're connected to the higher purpose of the work that we're doing or the life that we're leading. And so, yes, life throws at us some difficult challenges. But in order to help us build that resilience, whether it's at, um, at home or at work, when we're really connected and put into words the reason we get out of bed each day and our focus, then that helps us figure out what we need to do to overcome those challenges. All right. Well, Peter Docker, you spoke there of family and your handler here on the ground, Helen Downey, is from a great draw to family. She's a formidable lady and you're, you're lucky to have her on your team. And thank you for joining us on LMFM this morning and good luck with the rest of your speaking and leadership engagements while you're here in Ireland. The book is called Find Your Why, A Practical Guide for Discovering Purpose for You and Your Team. And it has sold 300,000 copies worldwide and it is in 26 languages. So that's some achievement and some finding of your why indeed. Peter Docker, thank you for joining us. We'll take a break. Orla Carmody on LMFM. There were 20,000 incidents of domestic violence against women and children last year, according to Women's Aid. 2018 also saw an 11% increase in domestic violence orders granted in Irish courts last year. Judges took action in nearly 10,000 cases of abuse, according to details released under the Freedom of Information Act. For example, in Trim, County Meath, there was a 47% increase where 674 orders were granted. And now we're not pointing a finger at 
me or trim. It's simply uh, one townland that we have a statistic available to us for. Next Tuesday night, September the 24th, a talk on surviving domestic abuse will take place in the Dulic Courthouse at 7.30pm as part of the Feel Good Project. One of the speakers at the event will be Detective Sergeant Laura Sweeney of the Domestic Abuse Intervention and Policy Unit who joins me on the line now. Good morning, Laura. Hi, Orla. Now, this is very, very worrying statistics, obviously. I suppose the question is, is there a big increase in the actual incidence of domestic violence or is it just that it's being reported more? Um, I think it's a case of that people are getting more confident um, in their ability to try to make a report. I think domestic abuse has always um, had a massive prevalence in Ireland, but now um, just through a variety of reasons, you know, with media campaigns, etc., people are, are coming forward and reporting it more. Now, obviously, you're saying people there, and we do know um, domestic violence is gender blind, but the incidence of domestic violence against women would be significantly higher. Yes, yes, I, I, I'd be like domestic abuse affects everybody um, within current or ex-relationships with any dynamic within the home. But yes, there is a greater prevalence towards women, but we have loads of cases where it's men, women and, and you know, children within the home. Now, um, it's probably not politically correct to say so, but you would wonder, um, as you've said there, uh, people are more aware, there's more advertising, people will speak up more. But does that in itself perhaps cause domestic violence in the sense that people won't put up with anything they speak out, rows maybe emerge. Does that actually lead to increased domestic violence? No, we need to be very careful, I suppose, about what the message we're sending out. Domestic abuse is existing, absolutely, regardless of whether our people are reporting or not. The responsibility and you know the cause of domestic abuse lies solely with the abuser. The victim is obviously assessing at particular points, and this is the, you know, the reality. My life or my life of my children is in danger and I need to seek help and assistance. So it's not that, you know, something kind of innocuous and minor happens and then, you know, a victim speaks out and then that leads to the row. When there is a thing to be considered, though, you know, and a victim will know this better than anybody, they will constantly assess what is the risk to them by ringing the guards, contacting a domestic abuse service, going and getting an order? Because everything in their life, they keep the domestic abuser in mind because that is the source of the abuse and the environment within which they live. Now, obviously, um, coercive control is something we're hearing more and more about. And as you say, very often in domestic violence, it is not a sudden explosion, a sudden row. It has been a whole series of abuses, small, seemingly innocuous comments or behaviours that have built up over a a number of years. And we now know that coercive control, it's a a defined psychological abuse in intimate relationships. And, And this really is the core of the issue, isn't it? I think coercive control is the toolkit by which a domestic abuser inflicts a variety of abuse, whether it be sexual, physical, emotional or psychological. It is that patterns of behaviour that they have at the beginning of the relationship, constantly testing, you know, oh, I can't believe you're going out tonight. Oh, I thought we'd kind of do something. See if you'll cancel maybe at last minute. See if you'll put them first in every regard. And through that pattern of behaviour, you will know as a victim the consequences for not doing something or doing something. Um, And now 
there isn't a sense for that pattern of behaviour where there wasn't before. And that's, you know, there's a lot of confusion about course control and there's people who are, you know, who are listening now and they have completely normalised everything that's within their life. Um, you know, a lack of freedom of movement, not being able to go with their, where they want, not being able to speak to friends and family, like you know, not being able to have their own privacy um, or, you know, access to their own money. And they have normalized this, I mean, sometimes and they think, oh, well, you know, this is just the relationship. This is just, this is what maybe my parents' relationship was like. But the difficulty is, is when it has, there's a threat of violence or when it has a serious effect on their day-to-day activities. And that's what course control. But the thing people need to remember is, because I know there's a lot of situations where course control could exist, but within the offence, it only applies to current or ex-partners. So it's not, you know, in the family dynamic between maybe a parent and an adult child. It's only within relationships or uh, intimate relationships. And this is a a new offence. It came into effect in January of this year. So if somebody, as you say, is listening and feels that they have their freedoms curtailed in this insidious and ongoing way, which, of course, is what coercive control is, there is there is recourse now. There is. And, And, you know, it is. It's not, I suppose, nothing within the criminal justice system is necessarily, I suppose, a magic fix, the panacea to what people are living with. But it definitely is an offence and it gives us, you know, the opportunity to investigate, to perhaps arrest, to prepare a file. And that's with the new offence. You have to get a lot of evidence. Um, you know, and I spoke about this previously before saying it's not that we are looking for an injured party to come to the Gardaí with this pre-prepared kind of file and say, oh, here's all my evidence. But they need to be aware that we need to gather evidence to make the best case possible for them. So we might look for maybe a diary entry or phone records or, you know, communications that were had with maybe family or friends to get an overall picture of what life is like for them. Now, there was a very uh, famous, sad case that came to light in the last uh, few months, and that was the Cloda Hall case where she and her three boys were murdered and there was a hashtag, her name was Cloda. And when her family subsequently spoke very movingly about that whole uh, incident, they spoke about coercive control. And in hindsight, they realised that they had spotted a lot of coercive control in the previous years, but didn't act on it for the very reasons that you were saying, oh, well, that was just their relationship and their job joined at the hip and that's the way they like to be. So the family were aware in hindsight, but it was too late then. Right. I just I, I won't speak about the Soda Hall case because I know it is the subject of a review, but I think there is, there is, unfortunately, just relationships and even ex-relationships that people are in that are just so horrific and just Literally, it is the first thing they think of in the morning and the last thing they think of at night. And the things that perhaps maybe you and I really would take for granted where you come home and you kick off your shoes after a hard day's work, they don't have that. Because in the home environment or in the relationship, they are just constantly trying to assess. Because what made the abuser happy last week is the thing that will trick them, you know, trigger an outburst maybe this week. And they're just constantly walking on shifting plates and just trying to think, oh, well, if I do this, that might make them happy. And if I do this, and that is that is a horrific way to live. And that's basically what coercive control is. It's that thing, you know, in the pit of your stomach going, something is not right here, but maybe you love your partner and you think, well, I remember what the relationship was like at the beginning and it was so lovely and so they were all about me. What you need to recognise if you're in that kind of relationship, the beginning of the relationship was the fake. 
That was the fall. Yes. The person you're with now and the way they're making you feel like that's the real them. They just lured and wooed you at the beginning to get where they want to be now. And I just think for people who are living with domestic abuse, they think it's going to get better. They think they're managing things at the moment. But I know domestic abuse will not go away. It will not get better. And I would just love people to know that they can reach out you know, to All right, Laura Sweeney, thank you so much for joining us with that today. And your talk is in Dulic Courthouse at 7.30pm. And Laura will be giving us lots more information at that talk about an app called Bright Sky that you can actually record day-to-day little incidents as if you're somebody who feels they might be in this situation. There's also a lot of other help available. The Women's Aid 24-hour free phone helpline is 1-800-341-900. And there's another Animan National Helpline on 01554. 3811 and we will put those uh, numbers up on the LMFM site for anybody who may feel that they need recourse or if they feel that uh, they may be themselves a victim of uh, coercive control. Don't put up with it. Look for help is the message from Laura there. That's where we have to leave it on the programme for today. My thanks to Marie Kearns, uh, my producer who was on her own this week because we gave Maggie a few days off for good behaviour so she was working terribly hard. Paul McKenna on sound and all the team here at LMFM. Have a lovely weekend. I'll see you on the radio. All going well next Monday. Until then, bye bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now michael at lmfm.ie. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.